0: Good morning. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter? For those that are visiting with us, we're just beginning to engage a series in Peter's epistle. We've been talking about, and Peter's really been talking about what it means to live like a Christian regardless of our circumstances, and he is writing to an exiled population that is in the face of and will face persecution we 're at first Peter chapter one verses thirteen through twenty one this morning as you 're turning there, I, I want to talk about next week for a moment. Many of you heard me tell some stories about some Amish that got called to be missionaries to Iraq and what that looked like next week we 're going to have one of those people, Steve Lapp, with us, and I'll be talking with him on stage about how God is working and moving in his life, in their life, and what's happening in terms of this whole Christ following in the Amish community. So it should be a very interesting week. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, He was foreknown before the, for, before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Through him, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's a term that was used in our American history. The term is regrettable necessity. It was the rationale used for owning slaves. They said it was a regrettable necessity that this had to continue. And over that regrettable necessity, about 620,000 people lost their lives in a war. 380 were wounded in that same war. And that war, equal to all the Americans lost in all the subsequent wars, that's how many died over a regrettable necessity. What I found interesting this past week in some of the debate going on in our Congress with what's happening in Planned Parenthood and the director, this term regrettable necessity was used once again. In light of all the evidence of criminal activity, and since Roe versus Wade, there's been 56 million lives lost. Over this regrettable necessity. As I thought about that this week. My mind went to the church. And I'm curious what we have placed in the category of regrettable necessity. Something we permit. Knowing full well it violates the holiness of God. But we just endure it because we say well it's the cost of doing business. Now, there's a list that haunts me in Scripture. Because this list, when we think about the disparity over the the morality in our country, and we think about everything we talk about, this list kind of is like a knife in my soul. The list is found in Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. And let me read it. I'm just going to read a portion of that. It talks about the six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And the word abomination and the word hate are pretty strong, aren't they? And here's the list. Proud eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run quickly into evil, false witnesses who lie, and those who sow discord among the family and the church. This past week, I was talking to two different church settings, two different churches. And all the issues they were facing, all the accusations, the disgruntled with, and, and there's these long lists that people weren't happy with, all the internal conflict inside the body of Christ in these two locations. Most of what I heard was on this list in Proverbs. There's a term that we've used down through the years. It's called nominal. We talk about nominal Christians. The word nominal means in name only. It was used to people who want to be known as Christians, who want all the benefits of Christianity, but sin in their lives becomes a regrettable necessity. Now there's many different versions of this normality. Some lost contact with the church but still claim they're Christians. Some, due to a crisis, create serious doubts in their life. Others live a life that's incompatible with the values of the kingdom of God. Still others fail to maintain an ongoing relationship with Jesus and then neglect the means of grace in their life. Now, think of that in terms of what Peter and who Peter is writing to. He's writing to people living in exile. Things haven't gone the way they expected. And you can imagine those groups, some just simply want to give up. What good is all this Christ following if this is what I have to live like? Others saying, I can't handle this. I mean, at the end of my road, I just can't handle this anymore. So others are saying, listen, count me out. I don't want any part of this. But Peter's writing to a people who thought they had it all figured out then came the crushing revelation of Jesus Christ. Now this passage we looked, are going to look at this morning. What I find interesting down through this, there's 19 verbs and there's three imperatives. Imperatives are commands. And very often we look at commands how? We look at them as harsh as something we don't want to do. It's like our parents telling us, go clean your room up. We don't want to do it. But think about a command as something that is beneficial to us. This is a loving father telling us that we need to follow this. Why? Because this is where we will find life. We often quote the verse, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The difficulty with that is we went our version of truth, and then our Christianity becomes a regrettable necessity in various categories. But these commands are there to protect us. They're there for our good. Here are the three commands. One's found in verse 13. He says, set your hope fully. The second is found in verse 15, be holy. And the third is found in verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, immediately you're looking at that, and it almost looks like a contradiction. How can you be full of hope but also have fear? I mean, what is he talking about? But Peter is telling us that we should live in hope, live in holiness, and we should live with fear. Let's talk about the first one, live in hope. Now, therefore, that points us back to everything we talked about in the first 10 verses. It talks about who God is, what the gospel is, the finished work of Christ. It talks about the alive hope, the joy in the midst of suffering. So it points back to everything he said, therefore, therefore. Prepare, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Let's have a disciplined mind. Let's have that attitude, which also was in Jesus Christ that we looked at last week in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He's saying you need to learn how to think well in the midst of all this stuff. You have to have a controlled thought life, and you need to focus on the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we sang a song this morning that's directly out of the book of revelation of Jesus Christ. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he says this in other places as well in Peter. In 1 Peter 4, 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So it sounds like if we don't control our thought life, our prayer life gets kind of messed up. We ask for the wrong things. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You ever feel like you're alone? And you're the only one going through this? It's not true. It's those lies. We're not thinking well. And after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I mean, look at the promise. Look at the end game. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the problem with thinking well is what we call our common sense. And the internet. It's amazing how we are willing to buy into whatever the internet says like we want it to say. One of the stories this past week was a story about a church. And inside that church, there's a group of people that have passion for coming alongside people who have gone through dark, dark, very dark places in their family. And so they created what they called an inner healing ministry. They just called that. And so they gather along and anybody who's worked with people who have had abusive, sexually abusive pasts know that it's a journey. And you walk and you pray and you walk and you pray. And for three years, this group of people found people suffering and they showed them the light of Christ. They found Christ. They became healthy Christians into the church. But one day, another group did some research on the word inner healing on the internet. Not scripture, but the internet. And found that some people think that inner healing is the devil. They split the church. They made accusations. They became accusers of the brothers and sisters. When I sat down with one of the key elders of that church, I asked him, well, whose daddy does that reflect? (laughs) Is it Christ? God the Father? Or is it Satan who is called accuser of the brethren? But see, and we have the example of Christ, don't we? Because Christ didn't fit into their theological construct of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and what they do. They accused him of heresy. Now, in verse 14, we read these words As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, here's the downside of not thinking well. By the way, children reflect the nature of their parents. Amen. And here he's saying, ignorance leads to indulgence. And we as the body have the privilege of grace. We just celebrated that through communion. But there's also the responsibility of grace. And so often when you talk about the responsibility of grace, some may make the accusation that you're preaching salvation by works. We do not believe that we are saved by works, but we are saved unto works. The purpose of salvation is that it benefits us, and it also benefits people around us. There's a change in our nature. But that's the first command. He says, listen, live in hope. Set your hope fully. Think about that. Put it into your brain. Think, think, pray. Put it down. The second, he says, live in holiness. Verses 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, it's obvious that God is in a class by himself, right? He is pure. He is absolute. He is unique. Hannah, in a prayer in First Samuel chapter 2, says this, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And what he's saying is there's only so much we can comprehend about God. And Isaiah repeats this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my way, declare the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are than your thoughts. So when you think about the holiness of God, it is so up there, we cannot even begin to fully comprehend it. So what does this mean? that we're called to be holy. How can God call us to be what only he can be? Now, the first thing we have to realize is it's Christ who makes us holy. We cannot make ourselves holy. So that's the first thing we have to remember. The second is this. We look at our text. How do we become holy? Well, we set our hope on him. We become sober-minded. We discipline our mind. We live with this unshakable optimism. It's another way of saying, in the kingdom of God, there are no mopers. Now, think about how he teaches us. And then think about we teaching our children. Now, before I spoke about nominal Christians... What do you want to teach your kids this morning? Now, what they discovered with children growing up inside the church, if you don't want them to become nominal, it states that every generation has to have its own authentic experience with God. Otherwise, it'll become in name only. They'll practice the faith of their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. And that's not what we want. See, the temptation about teaching our children about our faith It's not letting them have their own authentic experience with God, but rather our temptation is to teach them a lifestyle and not a holy pursuit of God. Now, I think about this concept of holiness, and one of our problems is we just have too much stuff. Somehow, we've grown to think that we're entitled, that because whatever, we should get things according to our design. One of our dilemmas in America is that it really is about us and not about God and his holiness. And so I think we clutter out the holiness of God. I remember the first time I went to Zimbabwe. And when you look at abject poverty, that is where they literally have nothing. And when you encounter situations in the bush, whether it's medical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's physical, emotional, you quickly realize if God didn't move, they die. I still remember somebody, a man that came for prayer because he had um, malaria. And I still remember putting our hands on him. I had never touched a human being so hot in my life. And we prayed, and he went away, and the pastor said, if God doesn't intervene, he'll be dead by the morning. And God intervened, and he woke up the next morning, and he was perfectly fine. So I think in America, we just have too much stuff that we clutter out, and we don't see the beauty, we don't see the holiness. We don't have this dependency, because we can work it out on our own. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to pass on an in-name-only version of God. I like the more than conqueror version that Paul talks about in Romans. And if we're going to have the more than conqueror version, we, we have to have a holy, alive hope that is born of the Spirit. We have to have a life that is shaped by the glorious holiness of God. We have to live in such a way that the only explanation for what is happening is it's a God deal. So live in hope, live in holiness, and live with fear. What's he talking about in verse 17? And if you call on him as Father who judges, you note here he talks about Father and Judge in the same sentence. You know, there's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Unhealthy fear is something like I I woke up Saturday morning and don't ask me why this happened, it just happens on occasion. And I woke up, and for whatever reason, I had this looming fear inside of me asking me, what do you think you are doing at GBC? And emotionally, it was kind of like, you know, you ought to be afraid because you're going to lose it all. Now, if you didn't know that about pastors, we wake up every once in a while thinking we're crazy, we're kind of insane, and tomorrow they're going to vote us out of the church. That happens, okay? Okay? Deal with it. We're human. But, you know, all day long I prayed, I worked, and the beauty of it this morning was a lot of the songs we sang, especially the Revelation song, that just kind of puts that fear to rest. See, that's unhealthy fear. Now, He talks about fear in verses 18 through 21. Note what he says about this fear. He says, listen, know that you were ransomed from the futile waves inherited from your forefathers. You don't have to be afraid of your past. In other words, just because you were born into this set of circumstances, you can break the chain of that. Not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Who, through him, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You don't have to be afraid of the past. You don't have to be afraid of your sin. You don't have to be afraid of what people will say. You don't have to be afraid of someone coming along and taking your life because you got God. Now, this fear is a double-edged sword. In one aspect, it it means respect. Of course, culturally, we distorted that word. Today, we misdefine it, and people confuse it with agreement. They're saying, well, I want you to respect me. And what they're really saying is, I want you to agree that I'm right. That's not respect. There's also fear, and we should be afraid of our potential sin. Remember we read about the passage about ignorance and passion that follows? We should be afraid that somehow, way, we could become like the Pharisees. That we become so legalistic and so bound in our mindset that we crucify the very one we claim we worship. John Piper tells this story. He says, imagine if you had a 15-year-old daughter and you had concerns. And your daughter was hanging out with the wrong kind of people. She was dressing the wrong way. Her language wasn't healthy. And so you've been praying for her. You've been fighting with her. You've been arguing with her. And one day, she's kidnapped. And the kidnappers demand a ransom. And you don't have it. So you literally go out and sell everything. You sell your home. You sell your cars. You empty your investments. Your retirement accounts. You sell your wife's, you get yourself a hold of anything you can, and you sell it to get the ransom. And the day comes for the exchange. And the deal's worked out that the kidnapper and you and the daughter are all going to be there so you know that she's alive. And when you see each other, you set the money out. The daughter will come pick it up, deliver it, and then she'll come to you. So that day arrives. You see your daughter across the way. You see the person, the kidnapped her, of course, in a hood, and a mask. You go out, you set the money. She comes out. She takes the money. She walks back. And as she goes to hand the money to the kidnapper, she turns with a smirk. And she walks away arm in arm with her kidnapper. Person you thought kidnapped her. Now, do you understand how fear should come into play there? We should fear the possibility that we could insult God by treating his son with that kind of disrespect. That us being his son and daughter, we could live with the regrettable necessity. And every day, we just smirk and say, God, you know, yes, you paid it all, but I'm going to live like I want to live. We should be afraid that we can be so wrapped up in our life and our desires and our wishes and our comforts and our preferences that we violate Proverbs 6, and we use about three of those out of the seven, because we're rights. I've sat with far too many situations where Christians have divided bodies where Christ is the head because of regrettable necessities. Now let me tell you another story, story that helps with this whole fear thing. True story by the way. man was talking about, they were visiting a person from their church one time. This was a preacher and he took his son along and this man had a very large dog. His son was 8 years old and this dog comes out the porch. He says, my son literally stood eye to eye with the dog. That's how big it was. Now, the owner says, don't worry. He's kid-friendly, loves kids, no problem. But the son forgot something back in the car. He says, oh, dad, I forgot something. Turns, runs back to the car, and he's running back. This very large dog trots behind him with a very low growl. And, of course, the son stops. And the owner yells, you better walk. He doesn't like people to run away from him. God doesn't like when we try to run away from him. And we should fear him because he runs after us. And he might have a very low growl at times. You know, Israel witnessed the glory of God. And they witnessed his anger as well. Remember when they were entering the promised land and 10 turned back from the promised land due to the human interpretation of what they saw? They didn't think well. They didn't have disciplined minds. They were part of the human potential movement. They didn't want to live the more than conqueror God movements, And they disregarded God's provision and they assaulted him. Listen to what it says in Numbers 14. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. In other words, I'm going to forgive you about this. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God, he's making a statement in fact. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. We should be afraid that we can witness the glory of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and choose not to live in hope and choose not to live in holiness and choose to live in unhealthy fear. Live hope. Live holy. Live with fear. I think about our country with the escalating violence. If you read in the news this past week, another shooting. And, of course, some of the language that came out said the shooter looked at people and said, are you a Christian? They said yes. They were shot in the head. If they didn't answer or no, they got shot in the leg. Now, I know we think that if we control this, But in case you didn't know, let me remind you. It's not more legislation. It's not more control. It's not more programs about tolerance. It is about the human heart. It's about the cure for the human heart. And think about how our culture desperately needs the real thing called the church. And they don't need Christians living with regrettable necessities. They need Christians that are born in Jesus Christ, that are born in the Spirit, that are living out in their circumstances the kind of mind that also was in Christ Jesus. So the question I leave with you this morning is this. Whom will influence whom? To so either we influence or we are influenced upon. But whom will influence whom? going to ask the band to come up. We're going to close with a song. This passage really is a call about hope, a call for holiness. And it covers every aspect of who we are. And one of those aspects is reflecting on our generosity. Now, after this, we got a very practical application to this. And it's part of who we are. One of the traditions we have here at GBC is we take something called a fellowship offering. And that offering is taken for those that have needs, and we're coming into the winter season where there's a lot of heating needs, a lot of practical needs. And it goes into a fund, and we have people that manage that fund. So on your way out this morning, if you want to be a part of that kind of ministry, just reach your pocket and put some cash in. There'll be ushers at the door for that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your word just speak to our hearts I pray that your spirit does interpretation. Help us, Lord, if we have lived with regrettable necessities to set that aside because far too many people die. Help us be the kind of influence that you call us to be, the light, the salt in this world. And I pray for all our circumstances we face every day that we go into those circumstances with Christ, with hope, knowing what it means to be holy, and having kind of fear that sets itself on you and not a fear that sets itself on this world. What a privilege it is to be part of your family, Lord. Thank you for being our dad. Thank you for leading us and being patient with us. In your name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Amen.